0: Hey guys, it's Andy, just touching base here to let you know, Lisa and I are not going to be having a new episode this week, as just schedules wouldn't allow, but I decided it'd be nice for some of you who maybe don't listen to Anomalous Fascination to at least have something to listen to today, Uh, this is my most recent episode that actually came out last week, the newest episode will be coming out tomorrow on Tuesday the 8th, so hopefully you all enjoy this, in the meantime, and we'll be back with you next week for our podcast Secret Santa, where someone will be taking over our show and we'll be taking over their show. Stay tuned for more information to find out what show we'll be covering. But we can't tell you yet, because it's a secret. See you guys soon. When does a phenomenon become the unknown? When all attempts at understanding fail and those who thirst for knowledge and understanding watch as research turns to ash in their mouth. As the phenomenon turns from a riddle to be solved into anomalous fascination. Hello friends. Thank you for tuning in to episode seven of the anomalous fascination podcast. I greatly appreciate your continued support comments and suggestions over the past few weeks. I've dozens of topics I've already pre-researched and plan to cover in the future, but as with episode five, your suggestion could be the next up on the list. So please keep them coming. In fact, This week's episode was chosen randomly out of a list of 30 plus topics. And when I saw what I'd drawn, I smiled. This is a topic I've known about for a couple of years and one which, if you know it, you know it. But if you don't, it is truly extraordinary. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Let's take a quick trip back in time. Let's imagine it's the 1870s. The Civil War is over. The Great Chicago Fire just left Chicago in ruins. Jesse James performs the first train robbery in the American West. And Mark Twain just published a little-known book, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. So it seemed that things are happening all around. But what about rural America? Or more specifically in our case, rural Kentucky? Sure, the first Kentucky Derby was run at Churchill Downs in 1875, but certainly not much to get excited about out on the plains. And even if there was, it would have to be something pretty extraordinary for it ever to get beyond the local newspapers and watering holes. Well, lucky for folks near Bath County, Kentucky, they got just that. It was March 3rd, between 11 a.m. and noon outside of the small rural home of Mr. and Mrs. Allen Crouch. Mrs. Crouch was enjoying a lovely March day making soap out in the yard as her husband was just inside the home. It was a bright and sunny day with scarcely a cloud to be seen and just a gentle wind coming in from the west. When something unusual happened. Despite the clear sunny day, light winds, and no signs of bad weather, It started showering suddenly and intensely. This obviously caught Mrs. Crouch by surprise and her husband as well, who immediately came outside the house to watch the showers. They both stood in amazement for several minutes as the showers continued to rain down around them before finally ceasing, leaving the Crouches speechless. Because in lieu of rain, sleet, snow, or even hail, the shower that rained down around their home for several minutes composed entirely of meat. Let's take a stroll, shall we? Chunks of meat were falling from the sky, and not just a few, an immeasurable amount that fell for several minutes. Mrs. Crouch would go on to say that although some of the chunks were quite large, Many of them were so light that they fell to the earth like snowflakes. When all was said and done, the Crouches looked around their property and found that approximately 100 yards or 92 meters by 50 yards or 46 meters was completely covered in meat. The chunks varied in size, with some as large as 4 by 4 inches or 10 by 10 centimeters, but most averaged around 2 by 2 inches or 5 by 5 centimeters. When asked about how much meat had fallen, Mrs. Crouch would tell reporters that it was, quote, enough to fill a horse wagon full, end quote. And this unit of measurement would be used by nearly every paper that would go on to report it. Which may seem like a strange turn of phrase to us now, but it was commonly understood at the time. Like a modern day equivalent of saying something like, it would be enough to fill a U-Haul the Crouch's immediate thoughts about this phenomenon was that it was either a miracle or a grisly warning. And honestly, who could blame them? Stories of ominous blood rain had been around since the Odyssey by Homer, and had been consistently viewed as an ominous sign of things to come. So needless to say, making the jump of associating bad omens with meat rain, not too far-fetched. However, the Crouches didn't have too much time to think on this, as it only took a few hours to a day for neighbors from all around to start making their way to the farm. Because, as we discussed, there wasn't a whole lot else going on for them. And it's fortunate that they did, because the Crouches no longer had anything to worry about. Because the local masses were now ready to do what they do best. Offer their unsolicited services to crack this case wide open. Neighbors and people from all around came to the farm to simply observe or offer their opinions on the matter. The largest consensus decided that this was beef due to its smell and appearance. A local hunter, a bit more of an expert in this arena, declared the meat to be bear meat due to its more uncommonly greasy feel. Obviously, there were theories abound by various laymen in the area on what type of meat it was. But at this point, there wasn't much scientific method or logical thought being applied to the situation. So it will come to no surprise to some of you that to determine what this multiple-day-old meat was, once and for all, a few men decided to taste the meat. Yes, I said what I said. Upon sampling the meat, the two apparent taste experts declared that it was without a doubt either venison or mutton. But, of course, that couldn't be the end of it, so another town legend, the local butcher, decided he would take a bite as well. And, as you may suspect, he had yet another differing opinion. As he stated, the meat tasted neither like flesh, fish, or fowl. So, needless to say, after the expert opinions of the masses turned up nothing, the town authorities finally decided it was time to collect samples and send them to chemists and universities around the country. Early results from chemists and universities did nothing to help clarify the situation. As one university agreed it was mutton, while another determined it was certainly meat, but absolutely not mutton. At this point you have to be asking yourself, why is there so much emphasis on what kind of meat it was? It fell from the sky, which is an excellent question, as finally Scientists determined it was best to leave the mystery of the what behind and focus more on the question of how and where this meat came from. Well, there was certainly no shortage of theories, which we will start diving into now. This first theory came from Leopold Brandis, a writer for The Sanitarium, which was a long running magazine devoted to mental and physical health. He suggested rather confidently that the substance found was, in fact, Gnostic crinium which is a type of bacteria that he described as being flesh-colored. This theory is based upon the fact that Nostoc expands into a clear jelly-like mass when rain falls on it, often giving the sense that it was falling along with the rain. Which is an interesting theory, except that this event occurred on a bright, sunny, and clear day without an ounce of rain falling. Not to mention that myself and many scholars agree that Nostoc has more of a seaweed green color to it, not even remotely flesh-colored. After positing this theory, Brandis had sent a sample of the meat to the Newark Scientific Association, hoping it would prove his theory, but that was not to be. As the samples put the final nail in the coffin on his theories, as the tissue was identified as lung tissue from either a horse or a human infant. Evidently, they have similar structures I, for one, am hoping it was the horse. Further analysis would evaluate even more samples, showing two being identified as lung tissue, three as muscle, and two as cartilage. So, nice try, Brandis. Another theory that was more popular among the locals rather than the academics, you'll see why, was that two brothers had gotten into a knife fight when a twister picked up the remains of the two breaking them up and depositing them over the Crouch farm. Sometimes you just have to read a theory and say, well, that's one way of looking at it and move on. A third theory and possibly my favorite was written by William Livingston Alden in the New York Times. He proposed that the meat shower was actually a meteoric shower. He explains that it stands to reason that if meteors are thought to be remnants of an exploded planet, perhaps this meat shower is the remnants of the inhabitants of said planet, suggesting that the Kentucky meat shower was simply exploded alien livestock. While I don't think a single ounce of science could ever support this theory, I do believe this is miles ahead of the twister knife fight theory. And finally, the theory that is most well accepted simply because of it being the only theory that could possibly explain every aspect of this event, the Vulture Theory Dr. Castabine of the Louisville Medical News published a theory based on an idea once suggested by an unknown Ohio farmer. The explanation is this. Turkey vultures and black vultures, the two vultures found in Kentucky, are known to take sudden drastic measures upon spotting danger or predators. They react by completely disgorging themselves. Or to put it plainly, they vomit extreme amounts of food. Meat is heavy and it can slow vultures down, so they often have to vomit to allow them faster travel to get away from threats. So it is posited that a large collection of flying vultures flying together suddenly felt threatened at the same time, collectively vomiting up copious amounts of meat, which the wind caught and deposited all over Crouch Farm. This theory explains the various types of meats, cartilage, and various forms of tissues found in the various samples. So, good news for everyone, right? Well, for most everyone, except the course for those three or four guys who decided to crack the case open by eating the meat. I certainly hope those gentlemen did not read about this theory. This case is still listed as unsolved, and I love that because while the Vulture Theory is still considered the most valid theory, which it didn't have much to compete with, This allows for people to continue investigating and proposing their own theories on the matter. Don't worry, I got nothing. So what else do we know about the Kentucky Meat Shower? Stay tuned after this short break to find out more. In the past 20 years, a professor named Kurt Godey has been investigating this case thoroughly, with whatever information and evidence remain today. He had moved from New York to Kentucky to start teaching at Transylvania University in Lexington, Kentucky, and had become fascinated with the Kentucky meat shower. He was shocked when he brought this event up to a class he was teaching, and no one knew anything about it. He wanted to do further research to hopefully shine some light on the subject he located an extremely rare but usable small corked bottle with some amber fluid and a chunk of meat inside of it, an original sample from the 1876 Kentucky Meat Shower, roughly 130 years after the event. He sent the sample off to a taste lab based in Cincinnati, where they would break down the flavor compounds of the meat and then create a jelly bean based on the flavor. Yes, you heard me a jelly bean based off the taste of a 130-year-old meat sample. Don't worry, they didn't base it on its current taste. In 2007, Professor Gody went to Court Days, which is the largest outdoor event in the state of Kentucky. He had thousands of people try his dark red jelly beans and had them all describe what they tasted like. Incredibly, just like back in 1876, the responses were extremely mixed and contradictory but the most common response was, raw bacon with a metallic taste. He may not have gathered much meaningful data from this test, but it certainly was interesting. Sounds like my kind of guy. Oh, and one last bit of information before we close this case. Despite the entire U.S. being transfixed on the Kentucky meat shower that occurred on March 3rd of 1876, the transfer of information from one country to another was not always Terrific. So it came as a surprise to many folks who had been so focused on this event for weeks or months, that there may have been one unexpected element that they missed. Because on March 12th, 1876, nine days after meat rained down over the plains of rural Kentucky, our friends across the pond got a bit of a surprise as well. As tissue, described as large red corpuscles, showered over the city of London. So, about that vulture theory. Twice in two weeks and then never again? Let's just say I'm open to new ideas. Thank you again for listening to this episode of Anomalous Fascination. If you'd like to keep in touch with the show, you can find me at AnomalyPod on Twitter or email me at anomalousfascination at gmail.com. And if you love the show... Hop on Apple Podcasts and leave a nice five-star rating and review. Or even just tell a friend about the show. And until next time, thanks for listening.